Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Hi, I'm Jeremy Gipton, Teacher Programs Manager with TeachingAmericanHistory.org, and thanks for listening today for another one of our Core American Documents Volumes editor interviews. Today we're joined by Professor Scott Yenner of Boise State University, who was the editor for our Reconstruction Volume, which is now available, and the links for which for the various digital and print formats are available in the blog post associated with this podcast. I'll talk about those a little bit more at the end of the show. But to get things started, I wanted to give Professor Yenner a moment to introduce himself, give a little bit of background, and then we'll jump into the interview about his work on our Reconstruction Documents volume. Hi, thanks, Jeremy. I um, got my Ph.D. at Loyola in 2000 University, and I've been teaching at Boise State since then. Uh, My portfolio of teaching generally includes American political thought. I teach constitutional law, ancient political thought, modern political thought as well. I've also been teaching in the MAG program uh, for Ashbrook uh, since its inception. I have taught, generally I teach the uh, American Revolution class, the Constitutional Convention class, and I have taught a couple of special topics class, including one on Reconstruction a few years ago. Uh, I got interested in Reconstruction uh, because of the sheer difficulty of the uh, project of trying to reconstruct the country on the basis of emancipation after the Civil War. And uh, I thought it was one of these great seminal events in American history where the practical difficulties of actually achieving the policy goals of the government uh, illustrated something important about what could be accomplished in politics and uh, what couldn't be accomplished through politics. And uh, so it always it, it started to really intrigue me, and, uh, and I began to write a bit on that topic. Well, our um, as I said earlier, we our core documents volume on uh, Reconstruction is now available, and, and Scott's the one who did the uh, assembling this and writing the questions and putting together the um, thematic table of contents, all those the, the different parts to the uh, to the volume. But looking at the topic of Reconstruction itself, your typical American history government teacher's got a busy year, uh, pretty crowded curriculum calendar. What would be your elevator pitch to a teacher to maybe hand off to a student to say, Reconstruction is important. Reconstruction is something you, you need to take time uh, or, or at least sink depth into because it's, it, it's important within the study of American history and government for this reason. What would be that reason? Well, in, uh, a short answer to that is my elevator pitch to that is uh, – Did the Civil War accomplish what it set out to do? Reconstruction is one of the periods where we really can figure out if it did. Was it worth it? And Reconstruction is where we figure out whether the dead had died in vain. So it's it's one thing to define the goals of the Civil War on a kind of low basis. That is, the Union was maintained, but no one liked it. Uh, It's another thing to say, and this was the goal of Reconstruction, that the hope was to reestablish genuine union feelings and, which would be really hard after a civil war, and also to accomplish the emancipation of the slaves, which itself would be a really hard thing to do. Those are the goals of the civil war. And Reconstruction is the part of American history where the most concerted effort to achieve those goals was made. And 
to what extent were those goals achieved? To what extent were they left undone? And, uh, and that's what really a study of Reconstruction can yield. So I think it's, you can't study the Civil War without knowing its causes and its effects. And Reconstruction is where we begin to really uh, delve into its effects. And, uh, and, I, and so I put that reason aside and then just give another one. Uh, you know, Reconstruction is one of these times in American history where you, you learn the limits of what law can accomplish. I really think, especially after reading the documents or reading many histories uh, about Reconstruction, that uh, I really think that the Republican politicians of those days really tried to do it. I mean, these guys got into politics to achieve the goals of the Civil War. They were creative legislators. Uh, they tried many different approaches to achieving both these goals of maintaining the Union and establishing uh, emancipation for the freedmen. They really tried. Why couldn't they do it? Uh, it's an it's a extremely interesting art, uh, uh, part of American history to get into why they couldn't do it. So I think, you know, that's my short elevator pitch. You can learn not a lot about not only the period, but about what can be accomplished through laws by studying Reconstruction. That, is, that's, that second piece is really fascinating. I'd never thought about it from that perspective, but that I would think from a political science standpoint would be or could be instructive in viewing all kinds of different episodes, trends, events, and time periods in, in our government. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I used to say that I study two things. Uh, I study the family in, in the modern polity, and I study Reconstruction. And, um, and they have this in common. Neither of them can be accomplished through law uh, alone. The goals of Reconstruction and the goals of having kind of solid family life can't be accomplished only through law. And uh, so they share that in common. So each of them point, I think, to the limit of a, a regime dedicated to liberty and based on laws. Well, let's talk then and let's, let's focus our attention here uh, from the topic of Reconstruction and its value and utility. Let's focus it on this documents collection. And, and, and before we get into that, actually just documents in general, how is in particular, in specific terms, how is the study of Reconstruction enhanced by using original documents instead of more traditional textbook or secondary sources? Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the case of Reconstruction, I think the documents reveal the genuine difficulty of the task and the upright intentions of those who are trying to accomplish the task. Uh, the, the, the politicians of Reconstruction are often painted with a kind of brush that they were either corrupt, therefore didn't accomplish their goals, or they were uh, believers in racial subordination themselves, and then therefore weren't all that concerned about the goals. When you read uh, the documents of those who are not only on the leading edge, but those who are kind of in the middle of trying to accomplish all of the things that those Reconstruction politicians tried to accomplish, you realize that neither of those prejudices we have about them is true. They were extremely creative lawmakers. They were up against a very, very difficult set of problems. In particular, like reading the laws that they passed, which are part of the document volume, uh, you realize how they really thought everything through and tried to accomplish, um, you know, tried to accomplish protecting freedmen from violence, for instance, through creative laws that really broke new ground in what the uh, United States government uh, sought to do. So I think, uh, you know, a, a short answer to your question is what do you learn from Reconstruction documents themselves? 
is you learn the intention and the creativity of these particular lawmakers, and uh, and and therefore you get a better idea of what, why they fail. Well, how about the, the the documents themselves? How many documents are there in this collection? Uh, there are thirty-one documents. Okay, thirty. Did you excerpt any of them? Almost all of them. Okay. Yes. Uh, one that I didn't excerpt, for instance, was the Thirteenth Amendment, which is only like twenty words. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't find so, anything to cut there. No, good, good. Thank you. So there, there are 31 documents, and then in addition, each of the documents has two study questions attached to it. Uh, there's also the thematic table of contents, and then there are also there's a, a list of suggested readings. Now, as you assembled this collection and chose these 31 documents, did you have a lens? Did you have a guiding narrative? What, what? How did you go about vetting and choosing the documents, the ones that made it into the collection? Well, I wanted to show the, uh, the, the beginning, the middle, and the end, if you want to think of it like that, of Reconstruction, and then give some evaluation of it. So the, first docu- uh, so the beginning of it is when the issues, the, the sheer difficulty of the task was becoming clear to those who were making decisions. And that was really during the, president of, uh, during the Civil War itself, where, where they could articulate the problem. And the first kind of groping answers to those problems that were going on during the war, and then once those problems were set, I tried to tried to show how over the course of time, the politicians adjusted to the circumstances as they still wrestled with these problems until they gave up, and uh, uh, and that's that's too strong of a term, but you know until Rutherford B. Hayes was elected president in 1876. And uh, take, takes the inaugural uh, office in '77. That's the last substantive document. And then I have one more speech by Frederick Douglass at the end, where he talks about what Reconstruction accomplished and what it didn't. But, but I really wanted to focus on the best document that wrestled with the questions and showed how the politicians of the day were very self-conscious in noticing what these issues were and in trying to reconcile them. And uh, I maybe should be a little clearer about one thing there, Jeremy. The issues are these. To what extent should the people of the South control their own government? And how should the freedmen be protected? And if you let the Southerners control their own government, they generally would not protect the freedmen. If you made the paramount object to protect the freedmen, then the Southerners wouldn't be governing themselves. So how do you balance these two important principles of the Declaration of Independence, consent and equality and freedom, uh, with one another in that context? Which, I think the best documents did that, and that, that's how I selected them. And, and really the way you're framing that is you, you have two seemingly mutually exclusive goals. Yes. They, they, uh, they're, they're mutually exclusive in that context. But in most contexts, they're not mutually exclusive. That we like to think of people being free and equal means that they should all be able to consent to the government. But what happens when people freely would like to deprive other people of their rights and they have enough people to control the government so as to do that? That's the situation you have in Reconstruction. And before Reconstruction, I mean, it was the problem of slavery as well. Tell me this. Out of the 31 documents, which one do you think is either the most important or maybe the most important with which to start? I, I think I would probably start with the last document. I think it's the most important of the bunch, which is a speech 
uh, given by Frederick Douglass on an anniversary of emancipation in Washington, D.C. I think it's the 21st anniversary of emancipation being announced in Washington, D.C. And um, in it, he evaluates what has happened uh, in the time between when he first entered public life and 1884 when he gives the speech. And uh, he talks about the, the, the condition of uh, the freedmen, of blacks generally in America, uh, having improved, you know, but having a long way to go. Um, and captures, I think, all the, all the dilemmas that the statesmen of Reconstruction face, uh, while also having a very sober view of what actually had been accomplished through Reconstruction. So... Um, for sobriety and perspective, I think Douglas's speech is uh, second to none when it comes to how important it is for that document. That's interesting. That's interesting too, because that your 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 notion of your desire to to talk about the beginning, middle, and end of Reconstruction, you you start with the afterward. In yeah. effect, you start with the post log from Douglas's perspective to to lay out everything that has happened, and then you'd enable that. That might put someone in a good mental position to then consider all the different steps and missteps and challenges that then led to what Douglas sees at that point as, as the, what was going on at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, the, the, the speech is somewhat called the United States cannot remain half slave and half free, which is a reference to uh, Lincoln's Christ of House Divided speech in 1858, when he was running for Senate against Stephen Douglas. And, uh, and it's very similar to Lincoln's speech, except it comes afterwards. And it ha but it has the same uh, statesman-like perspective on the whole era. And, you know, many of the guys who were statesmen at that time had that perspective. You know, I mean, Lincoln certainly had it. And many of the members of the radical Republicans, so-called, uh, had that statesman-like perspective. But Douglas... As a, as a coming in at the end of the game, continues to have that perspective and can give you kind of a, a, the, the framework to understand everything that went on during Reconstruction. So starting with Douglas, that, that, that makes sense. Start with the end. Start, Start with, with the, the end. end. Yeah. Now, what about another document that you would not want someone to miss? Not the most important, but maybe uh, an especially noteworthy one out of the collection. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to interpret that somewhat to mean like a really under underrated sure. uh, document. Uh, there's a speech in there uh, by Charles Sumner, who was you know one of the firebrands of Reconstruction, a really important radical Republican, uh, always on the cutting edge of what could be accomplished. And Sumner, in in this particular speech that I include, I, I can't the, the the name of the speech is just escaping my brain for a second, but I'll get it to you in a second. Uh, I think it's just called like. Uh, one man rule versus Congress or something like that. But in any event, uh, what he does in there is he makes an argument for Congress taking charge of Reconstruction policy against Andrew Johnson. There's a, there's a real battle between Sumner and his Republican colleagues and Johnson over Lincoln's legacy at that point. What would have Lincoln done in Reconstruction? It's one of these great questions that if he hadn't been assassinated, what would he have done? Could he have done better? Could he, have, could he have somehow managed to reconcile these very difficult-to-reconcile principles? And Sumner in there makes the best case that I know of for someone saying that Lincoln would have changed how he had behaved once the war was over and that he would have been a radical Republican of some sort 
that Johnson trying to misappropri- or misappropriate Lincoln's legacy when uh, he claims it for himself. So I think that that was a very surprising thing to me that there was such a struggle over Lincoln's legacy immediately, uh, I mean within a year and a half of his assassination, that, that the that the stakes were so high over that legacy. It's a battle between Lincoln's vice president and Lincoln's fellow partisans, and Lincoln's fellow partisans had always been in kind of a tough relationship with Lincoln because they never thought he went fast enough. And here is vice president seems to be continuing the policy of Lincoln, which is kind of easy, easy to get back in the union for the southern states. He doesn't demand too much on race relations from them. And Sumner really makes a nice case. I don't know if I would say it's the most compelling, but he really makes a nice case that Lincoln would have changed and uh, not been at all like Andrew Johnson after the war. So that was a real surprise to me. of, of all the speeches that I read that both I included and didn't include, that was a very interesting one. Well, I hope then people, people will turn to that. That's, that's, that's good. Now, going off of that, you just made me think of something that you, know, you, you said that of the, the speeches and documents that you read and included and those that you didn't and the things that you learned from them, when you finish this volume and you look back over your work, is there anything that you take away as having learned or you have a different perspective that months ago before you started this work, you, you clearly didn't have. How has this changed you and your perception yeah. of Reconstruction? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I went into this, the study of Reconstruction, as I said before, really thinking that these guys were men of integrity, and uh, they were honest union men, and they were thoroughgoing abolitionists. And they wanted to accomplish both those ends, that they were serious people. Just like, you know, people, Republican politicians in the 80s and 90s of this last century considered themselves the party of Reagan, and they got into politics because they liked Ronald Reagan. These guys got into politics because they were following Lincoln. They were men of Lincoln. They were trying to achieve his goals. So I never really doubted that they were men of upright intention and the sound policy goals. Uh, but what really surprised me, I think, is how early the thinking about Reconstruction started among Republicans. Um, I mean, once the war was on, and certainly once emancipation was announced as a war aim on July, uh, J- uh, January 1st, 63, they were thinking about Reconstruction, and they were battling over what it would be like. So how early the thinking and how real thought- thoughtful um, the thinking among all of the uh, uh, prominent actors was really impressive. The, the one document I didn't include uh, because the general editor you know, uh, thought it was too oxymoronic was uh, a speech from, uh, from Lincoln in 1854, six years before the war, where Lincoln imagines what it would be like to emancipate slaves and how difficult it would be to emancipate them. So the thinking even precedes the war about how difficult that goal was going to be to accomplish. And uh, that's, I would say, the biggest surprise to me. Because oftentimes Reconstruction, I remember when I was in high school, Reconstruction was presented as the next event, the next discrete event in a sequence of events immediately following the Civil War. And so that it's this separate thing that took place, thus it began after the war ended, and it's it's interesting to see just how much they they overlap. I, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, w- once the Union takes Louisiana, 
which is in 1862. They're like, what are we going to do now? Who gets to vote? Who gets to vote here in Louisiana? Should we have the same government that we used to have? Can we just go back to the government we had before secession? Should the Constitution be changed? I mean, they have to answer, ask and answer all of these questions. And, uh, and you know, it's really difficult to accomplish even just that. I like to think of it in the abstract, Jeremy, like this. I mean, name one country that has a civil war and then 20 years later is getting along. It's hard to do. Name one country that has a large population of slaves and then just decides to emancipate them. It's never been successfully accomplished in a short term. The United States tried to do them both at the same time, and they had to do them both at the same time. I mean, in Russia, they freed the serfs, and six years later, they had the Bolsheviks. I mean, just to avoid those disasters is uh, an incredible act of statesmanship, in a way, and uh, the, the foundation for that is laid in Reconstruction. It's fascinating. I hope that I hope that people then uh, take the opportunity to to expand their understanding by by turning to this volume. So, Scott, thank you for your time today and your insight, and thank you for your work on this this volume. I'm really excited about being able to sit down and, and read through it. It was and, my pleasure to do it. And great. And uh, to those listening, remember that uh, the links to the PDF, which is free, and you can distribute this to you can distribute the PDF to students or anyone else if you'd like. Uh, that is free. The iTunes ebook, if you are an Apple user, is also free. The link to the Amazon Kindle version of the uh, documents volume, those are 99 cents. And also the, uh, through Amazon, we do print on demand for $10 for a physical copy of the book. So we have four different formats, two of which are free. One is almost free, and one I think is very reasonably priced for a, for a collection like this. So thank you again, Scott. Thank you, folks who are uh, listening. And we will have, in the near future, we will have another interview with another editor of another one of our core documents volumes. You can find information about all of these volumes at tah.org slash core American documents. That's core American documents all together, all lowercase. Thanks for listening today. Thank you for listening to another tah.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.